Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I am Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. And we will also be doing another grab bag roundup of a bunch of recent films that we have seen. This will be our winter grab bag, the final one for the year. Wow. It'd be one for the ages because we've got a lot to talk about. We sure do. Start out with some news, some big monumental industry news. Bob Iger is returning as the CEO of Disney. Bob Chapek has been ousted, and this is only coming two years after Bob Iger retired and stepped aside for Bob Chapek to step in. Dylan, what do you make of this? This uh, changing of the Bobs. I think it's probably a good thing. I mean, Bob Iger's willing to spend money to make money where Bob Chapek wasn't. Bob Chapek was more like Bob Chapek. Am I right? <laughs> He certainly was. Yeah, there's a lot of hoopla about the fact that he was more of a business type person that wasn't really uh, both interested or aware of the creative side of Disney and how that is extremely crucial to the whole brand and spirit of that company. So, yeah, he was making a lot of financial decisions that I guess maybe looked good on the spreadsheets at the time, but in terms of the long-term health the overall company, I guess they finally decided, huh, this is not going to work out. And then so they they booted him and brought Bob Iger back, which shout out to Iger. I mean, they must be giving him a big, big paycheck or he really must feel like his legacy is intertwined with Disney's now because him coming back after retirement in the current state of things. I mean, he's got a lot on his hands. So, yeah, I mean, he tried he tried to get out and they pulled him back in. They sure did. So yeah, if it were me, I would have just, I would wipe my hands clean with it. I would have been like, I had a good tenure. I'm going to just write out my retirement, but I guess, I don't know. I've seen reports saying that he was bored in retirement. So that's part of maybe what's calling him back. He wants that excitement. Being bored Mm -hmm. sucks. But along with that Disney news, we got a bunch of trailers to talk about. Two of which are, Owned by Disney, I suppose, is the way to, yeah. Uh, let's start with Indiana Jones 5 and the Dial of Destiny. What did you think of the trailer, Ryan? What did you, what did you, what are your thoughts? So I will say, I like the title. I and don't like the title. You don't? I'm a yeah. hater on the Dial of Destiny. Why not? Why don't you like it? What's I, your I just, <laughs> I just think it sounds stupid. I just think it sounds stupid in the same way that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull kind of sounded stupid when they first announced it, but now it kind of sounds okay because I'm comparing it to Dial of Destiny, <laughs> which sounds stupider. You know, Dial, the Sundial, Destiny, but, but, it's like the bro, final but, bro, outing but, of Indiana Jones. But, it works. But, 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 bro, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple I mean, of Doom. 
okay. Last Crusade. You're these comparing are these to titles. some of the best titles of any movie. So. Banger titles. But they're also tied Destiny? That sounds like out. a Dora the Explorer adventure. <laughs> no, you're being too harsh on it. I think you're, you got nostalgia you're lenses in the on the well. Destiny. I think it, it'll come around. Maybe. I mean, we'll see. Like we'll it. see if I'm they okay. use it. This you is a premature no, no, no. I mean, I'm saying how they use the title. Like, like, like oh, gotcha. it affects the story. Like, maybe I'll change my mind if it's like a good story involving some kind of dial. We'll see. Well, <laughs> that'd be hilarious if it, there was no dial or sundial or anything that was in the story. They just said, hmm, let's just call it. We need something to have, you know, the alliteration with Destiny. Let's just say dial. Dial is really before. good. Yeah. Nobody's ever talked about dials. Nobody ever uses dials anymore. It's perfect. They use dials in the 60s, right? That would be funny, anyway. but I'm sure they will have a very specific dial of destiny that will be referred to as such in the movie, possibly. Okay, so. but, but, but title aside, title aside, thoughts on the actual trailer itself. Do you think it looked good? Uh, yeah, I thought it looked good. It wasn't outstanding, I would say, but I think it was quite satisfactory. I, am I would agree. Looking forward to it. Yeah. I would agree with you. Man, he's old. I he mean, really my is. God. You can definitely tell <laughs> that is not it's that man up on the crazy horse. Crazy thinking that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out in two thousand and eight, right? Two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and he was old then. <laughs> yeah, it's been what 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Yeah, it'll come out twenty twenty. And he was yeah. old then, and it's been fifteen years since that one. Jesus Christ. It is crazy, but hopefully, you know, they'll have worked around it and they can still make some exciting action. The de-aging scenes. looks good, I would argue. I do, I think so, yeah, at certain points. Although, again, when he was up on the horse, it was... Oh. Honest, but, yeah, it'll be one. I'm sure, by that time. There was one awkward CGI shot. I don't remember what it was. It's like him jumping. Ah, what was it? I don't remember. There was a, a scene where he jumps, and it's definitely a CGI jump, and it looks really awful. <laughs> So if they yeah. keep that in without fixing it, that'd be bad. I don't know why they would include something like that in the trailer. It was just yeah. god-awful. True. I will say, to its credit, I thought the little like stinger they have at the end, the little gag they do, I thought that was very good. I don't understand why many trailers do that sort of thing where they try and leave it off on like a little funny moment. And many of them are awful. I don't know why yeah. so many of them are so bad when that's supposed to be like, oh, this is what we'll leave them with. I think this does a very good job of leaving us with something that is quite amusing and it's also like a callback so i think it hits the nail on the head with the very final few moments of the trailer so i guess but also it's he's an old man and he's ducking while they're pointing 40 guns at him and he Mm -hmm. misses every single bullet and he's an old man look i think it's fine you telling me nobody in that room has any reflexes whatsoever to hit him before he drops you know you just got to go with it. The whip, the bit where he whips and then they point the guns at him was great because it reminds me of the the bit with the guy with the scimitar and he pulls out the gun and shoots him in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I exactly. wish they hadn't pulled the triggers. I wish they had just left it there because then I would have been like, that's funny. That's good. But the the pulling the triggers and actually shooting at him and he ducks. Mm-hmm. Don't buy it. Don't like it. Don't buy it. Well, I'm wondering if there is something more to the scene too and what his you know exact relationship with all of them yeah. Is because they They're also all just kept shooting. It's a prank. They kept, yeah, they also just kept shooting at the same spot. Like none of them followed to 
shoot at him when he had ducked, which I assume, I mean, yeah, just walk. Maybe there's, there's a big window there. Maybe there's something in the window and they CGI'd it out for the trailer. Maybe, yeah. So he ducks and they shoot at the thing. That would be better. I'll take it. But we'll see. Other than that, we have the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 trailer, also owned by Disney. What are your thoughts on this trailer? Do you think they're going to really face that music, Ryan? Do you really think I they're going to face it, Ryan? must confess, I have no clue what you're talking about because I didn't see it. No, Ryan. I, was, I meant to, but then I got sidetracked. I was busy all day, but you saw it. So what happened? What were well, you the, the tagline is, let's face the music. Or they okay. face the music, something like that. That that's oh, gotcha. really it. It looks good. It looks kind of intense, like more intense than I thought it would, which is surprising because it's a Marvel trailer. You know, they're usually pretty mm-hmm. goofy and silly and whatnot. This one seemed kind of intense, which is weird also because it's the Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, they're meant to be slapsticky a little bit. True. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I think it'll be good. I trust James Gunn to give me something that's entertaining and quality, <laughs> but I don't want them to just. I don't know. You watch the trailer and you let me know, but it just kind of seems like they're all going to die, which well, we really, I don't think they will. Be... It's going to be their end note. Like they're not exactly. going to come back in Marvel. It will sure. be their finale. But, but like all of them can't die. I mean, that that's, would just yeah, be that can't much. be the call they make because that would just be too drastic. That's not the way to go. Or maybe it'll be great. It'll be like, uh, what's it called? Uh, Rogue One, where they all just die. And then the movie ends. That would be and honestly very cool. Because yeah. I mean, I like the route they do with the Rogue One, but also we knew going in that it was a, a fraud mission, and yeah, that these are just new characters. If they really said we're going to take these group of characters, this group of characters that we've been with for a couple movies now, and then just kill them all off at the end, that'd be crazy. There's we'll a shot they guys. show in the trailer. That seems like a spoiler shot. I won't tell you what it is because you'll know when you see it. Unless you don't give a shit. It's it's I mean, literally I'll see it when it comes up. Okay, yeah. It's literally a spoiler shot, and I'm like, either either it's not it's not what it like it's not what it looks like, and it, they're just showing it in there to add to the tension, or they just spoiled the end of the movie. You know how they did that with Black Panther, where they showed the last shot, or like they'll yeah. they'll show the last shots in the movies. If they did that, if they really did that, and they put that in the trailer they put that ending in the trailer dude i would be pissed <laughs> yeah that's I, another thing that boggles my mind with the marketing of these films is that they'll so often put the final trailer or the final shot in the trailer why do that so i'm hoping it'll be just a misdirect that they're doing and yeah they hopefully didn't spoil the movie in the first trailer but yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give it a look and see and then we can talk about it if they did in fact spoil it the it's got to be trailer. some kind of a, yeah, it's got to be, it can't be, whatever. It can't just, be, yeah. I'll be mad, I'll be mad. It'll have to be a misdirect, which, I mean, they've been known to do things like that before, so maybe mm-hmm. they, yeah, are intentionally doing that for, you know, to throw us off. But the other trailer, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts, I also did not watch this. I, I like skimmed through it, but I did see the thumbnail, which was a gorilla Transformer. I just Is that true? Yeah, you just look up. Type in right now Transformers Rise of Beast trailer and just find the thumbnail. Things hilarious. I just looked up Transformers Gorilla. Do that too. It's just showing me cartoons. Optimus Primal. No, <laughs> no way. 
No, it was the, I don't know what channel it was exactly, but if you type it in on YouTube, just type in Transformers Rise of Beast. Yeah, I'll go to YouTube. And then you should see the gorilla. Transformers Rise of the Beasts. So that, and then the Anthony Ramos, like, gorilla. walking out of the car. You see it? The gorilla. Bro, it's it's got to be Optimus Primal. Is that what it's called? Optimal Primal? Optimus Primal? I mean, I, I just Googled Transformers Gorilla, and a bunch of kids' toys of a Transformer Gorilla came up, and it was called Optimus Primal. So I think it's based on something. Like, it's not, they didn't just pull this out of their ass. Interesting. They didn't just go Transformers, but instead of turning into <laughs> robots, they turned into robot animals. I think this is from something. Hmm. This is Transformers 7? Is that you five? Well, it's the seventh movie of the Transformers, but technically it's a prequel, I think. Dude, they gotta, they gotta stop. No, I mean, they took a break, so we'll see if they're able to, you know, make it a big franchise again. No. Speaking of big franchises, Avatar, the <sighs> final Avatar 2 trailer came out. It also coincided with the ticket sales going online. I think it looks really good. I didn't and watch it, and I'm not going to watch it because I'm just going to wait for the movie to come out. Don't want that's to my plan, too. I intended not to see it, but I think I it was around when Wakanda Forever was coming out or some other movie, so I was like, oh, I'm going to go to theaters anyway, so I'll just watch the trailer on the big screen. Man, it looks good. Like, it looks better than the other ones, so I'm hoping uh, that it will attract many people to come out. And some exciting news for me. Some bad Not news. Not so much for, for you. Yeah. Yeah. There has been confirmation that it will be released in China. It has the same release date as the USA. So that is good. However, what is not good for both just people and then also for our box office draft, which is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, but COVID is on the rise in China. Uh -oh. And there is also big protests going on against the uh, zero COVID policy and what the government is doing to try to lock things down. So that throws everything up in the air. Theaters yeah. will not be at full capacity. And I don't know, it may get even worse. So then no theaters are there. So I don't know, it's up in the air, but there will be some contribution from China for my box of a strap, which is great, but it won't be as significant as it could have been if it was, you know, if they were at max capacity over there. Yeah. I... I, I'm a little more doubtful in my victory now because of this. Mm -hmm. It's the only also, movie. It's the only movie of the ten movies we picked that's going to be released in China. That's a heavy hitter right there. I don't know if that's true. I thought Jurassic World was released in China. You're right. It did, but it didn't do well. And it well. did help you out. It helped you get to it a helped, billion. So. But it didn't. It didn't. It didn't do what China was supposed to do. Exactly. And so again, the consolation for you is. It will, Avatar 2 will not do what it could have done in China if this were, you know, a non-COVID world. But you're right. I'm confident again. It will still help. Well, you shouldn't be confident. <laughs> saying, even without China, your faith. I'd win. So we'll see what happens. But moving on to our box office breakdown for November 25th to the 27th, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, still the one on top, 45 million. Chugging away. Bringing, indeed. And bringing its domestic total to 365 million. And it's worldwide to 680 million. 
Hell so yeah. were you seeing this thing ending its run worldwide? Worldwide. Mm, 850, maybe close to 900. Gotcha. So not a billion dollars. I think it's my cut shy. Since it's, yeah. right, since that's 680 right now, my cut shy. And Avatar yeah. is about to come up. True. Yeah, I'm thinking it'll uh, just inch past 900 million, but I don't think it'll be able to yeah. match Doctor Strange at like 950 or Sad. get a billion. So, But it did yeah. really well. It did really yeah. well. After that was Strange World, which made twelve million, and this was its debut, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a huge bomb, huge <laughs> bomb. Strange World blew itself out of the water and blew up and just died on impact and just gone. Yeah, the film was budget, not marketed was that well. The budget is over a hundred million. Yeah, bomb, a huge bomb. So very unfortunate for the people that worked on that. But yeah, I mean, I don't even, I mean, there wasn't too much advertising, I don't think, from Disney. Yeah, I didn't think they also, see much. They had no faith in it, really, I guess, because they didn't think it'd be that great of a film. And then, so not having good word of mouth combined with not having any marketing, really. Uh, Probably shouldn't have given them $100 million. True. Very true. So moving on from that to Glass Onion, 9.4 million in just 700 theaters, which was quite a success. However, yeah. you will not be able to see that next week because it is already out of theaters. You'll only be able to see it when it's on Netflix at the end of the year. Yeah. Dylan, you're doing you're just miming your tears I can't. for the fourth time. I know. I can't stop. I think it looks so funny on the screen. <laughs> I'm looking at myself do it. And it just looks hilarious. After Glass Onion was Devotion with 5.9 million. That was also a film that debuted over the Thanksgiving week. The menu with 5.4 million. Black Adam well. with Black Adam with 3.2. The Fablemans also debuting 2.2 million with just 600 theaters. So it wasn't in wide release, but still you would have hoped for more out of that uh, first week and weekend for the Fablemans. Bones and All by Luca Guadagnino with Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell was able to rustle up 2.2 million. <laughs> that was a stretch. Uh, were it was you, a bit of a stretch. Did you plan all that? Like, did you intentionally mention no, the actors I, <laughs> to do it? No, I oh, said yeah. her name, and then I was gonna say Russell up, and I realized I just said Russell. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, I guess I can't miss the opportunity, even though it's bad. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I appreciate the commitment. Thank you. I'm just going for it. Yeah, the yeah. ticket to Paradise film starring George Clooney and Julia Roberts, one point eight million. And then The Chosen, season three, episodes one and two, has somewhere between 1 million and 1.8 million. I didn't jot it down. But yeah, they hold on to their spot in the top 10. So good for them. I have no idea what that is. What is that? It's uh, The Chosen. It's, yeah. So they premiered two episodes of season three in theaters, and it's a Christian show. Oh, oh. Yeah, you're right. I have heard of that. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, box office predictions for the second to the fourth coming out this weekend. David Harbour's Violent Night, where he plays Santa Claus on a rampage against kidnappers, blackmailers, terrorists, something like that. <laughs> what do you think it's going to make, Ryan? What, 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 what do you predict? Let's say I think it can get double digits. Let's say I agree. 10 million. I was going to say like 13 or 14, but all right. Interesting. All right. We'll see what happens. But yeah. at least both of us are, you know, feeling a little optimistic about it. Yeah. But it I probably mean, will not. It definitely will not unseat Black Panther. So, but again, come in at a nice number two. I agree. Now let's get into our grab bag for the holiday season. If only we could have watched Violent Night for it, but one week too too early. Glass Onion came out in theaters before it was set to come out on Netflix. And so you and I launched at the chance to watch it. What did you think? What what, what were your expectations going into it? Having seen the first one and had a mediocre response to it, same as myself, what did you expect going into Glass Onion? Well, I expected it to be a very fun experience a nice murder mystery movie i mean you certainly are a huge fan of that you got into your little agatha christie phase reading all that stuff i enjoy it haven't quite gone that far yet although i do want to catch up and read all those things but i like the genre i think ryan johnson's subversions of tropes in the genre were interesting in knives out like that part of it was my favorite it's just as the movie went on, I thought I lost a little bit of steam. And then the whole outlandish, outrageous way that everything was explained at the end, it just it sort of lost me. But I was excited for Glass Onion. I mean, I had the star-studded cast. Let's see if we can name collectively all the people that were in it. So obviously you got Daniel Craig. It's got Edward Norton, Catherine Hahn, Dave Bautista, Kay Hudson. Ethan Hawke. Yes, and a much too brief appearance. And, uh, oh, another brief appearance. Well, there were a couple of brief appearances. There were cameos from Angela Lansbury and Stephen Sondheim, who had both passed away, as well as, well as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And uh, who was the fourth person he was playing Among Us with? <laughs> I forget. I forget, too. But then also, um, who played his boyfriend? Uh, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant was in it. Yes, we also briefly. had... Leslie Odom Jr. and then of course Janelle Monet in a big uh, role yeah. for her. I mean, she's first and foremost a musician, but has been getting into acting more and more as of late. So a big role for her here. We're do we want to go ahead and spoil things, or do we uh, do you want to give? You... Oh, we could just spoil it. Who cares? I mean, <laughs> okay, so here's your warning. If you want to watch Glass Onion without all the things spoiled, which, why wouldn't you? It's a murder mystery. Wait until it comes out on Netflix if you didn't catch it in theaters like us, and then come back to this episode and listen to our thoughts. But I think just to give you an idea of what our feelings are about it and whether we recommend it or not, personally, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I think it's better than the first one. I enjoyed my time in the theater. It's a big recommend for me. What about you? See, this is where we disagree. See, I think it was actually really a lot better than the original, and oh, I there you really go. Okay. enjoyed it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, 
I had I a good was, time. I, I, was, I was it was entertained. I was delighted. I thought it was fun, and I thought the problems that I had with it were not significant enough for me to have an issue, a serious issue with the movie. In the same way that for Knives Out, the issues that I took with it were significant enough for me to not like it at all or not want to watch it again. Even though I did end up watching it again, and then those those opinions were cemented into my brain as being correct. Wow, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so there we go. We both have been converted into fans of the second Knives Out, uh, whereas we were not for the first. So let's talk about why this one ended up clicking for us. I think, and again, we will be getting spoilers, so bow out now if you don't want to hear it all. But I think, once again, the biggest strength of Knives Out has been carried over here, and it's just the way that he'll uh, take a take a different angle on the murder mystery idea that we have come to know and love about the genre. And he's done it in multiple ways in this one, which I think is Mm -hmm. quite nice. So, I mean, it starts out with the whole idea of they're going to go and play a murder mystery game, like one of those murder mystery parties. And that is going to be where he'll need to like actively try and solve the false like the game version of the murder mystery while the real murder mm-hmm. mystery comes into focus. That's where you think it's going. And then it doesn't go that way because he solves the fake murder mystery immediately. And then now we're just left with what may become the real murder mystery, although no one mm-hmm. was killed at that point yet. And then someone is killed and now we're like, okay, now we're off to the races. But then once again, they change it up and we find out that actually there was a murder that already took place all along. And uh, Benoit Blanc has joined forces with the twin sister of the victim to go to this uh, little murder mystery party and try and find out. Well, I guess they would have known one of the people did it, but they would want to know who exactly did it. And they also want to find whatever proof they can mm-hmm. to show that it was not a suicide, that the sister, you know, it was set up to look like a suicide, but no, she was actually murdered. How can we mm-hmm. prove that? And I think. That is such a clever entry yeah. point to a film like this. It's so yeah. satisfying to see that play out. I think another advantage that this film has over a lot of other murder mystery movies that you might watch is that Ryan Johnson is a tremendous filmmaker. And he was in Knives Out too. My problem with Knives Out with the way was with the way he had written it. But through and through, he's an incredible filmmaker and knows how to to craft things in a way that are entertaining, engaging, and suspenseful. And I think the scene in this movie where uh, they're all in the room after Benoit Blanc solves the mystery and they're all just having that moment where they're yelling at each other and the Mona Lisa painting is flipping up and down because of Dave Bautista's Google alerts mm-hmm. and is building up to the actual murder is great. I think it's fantastic. Just absolutely wonderful incredibly suspenseful and just very, very well done. And it subverted me in a way that I actually enjoyed this time, as opposed to perhaps the first movie with Dave Bautista being the victim, the, well, the the secondary victim. I think that was quite a well-worn surprise. Mm -hmm. For sure. And yeah, to your point about him being just an exceptional filmmaker. And so it elevates all the other things that are going on. Because again, the writing itself is really solid, but just everything else that he brings to it, I'm thinking in particular of when the, which is also a good piece of writing, is when 
as part of the fake murder mystery game, when uh, Edward Norton's character Miles something I forget his last name, but Miles Miles Braun Miles Braun he had made it so that the lights would all turn out at a certain time, and then of course that happens once the real murder mystery has kicked off, mm-hmm. and then you just see the one floodlight that's circling spinning around on the island and then the lighthouse yeah exactly it allows and every now and then you'll just see that huge shaft of light pour in to where they are in that mansion Mm -hmm. and again the suspense of that scene as they're trying to find miles miles is running you think the like that sister had something to do with it maybe possibly we know that there's a gun that once belonged to batista but now is no longer with him so someone has that gun like it's all just really well done yeah it's great it is it is thoroughly engaging and thoroughly entertaining and just well well done. The shot of when the person has the gun and they shoot Janelle Monet, the shot of the glass breaking is great. Mm-hmm, for sure. And the sound, oh man. It's really, <laughs> exactly. really good. So that is quite good. And then it's also got a lot of solid comedic elements. Oh which yeah. This one, you know, did as well. I can't remember too much of how I don't know how all that landed for me, but this one, I mean, I was laughing quite a bit at it. Yeah, I remember the first one going for it and me think because the whole thing he wants to do is to comment, like be satirical and criticize modern day times in the same way that uh, uh, Agatha Christie did in her time. And I understand that's what he's going for. And the first one, it didn't feel like he was willing to really go all out in that criticism. And it just felt like, very surface level and had me laugh sometimes, but for the most part, I was trying to focus more on the mo- on the murder mystery, and I couldn't have fun with the humor as much, and it just <laughs> didn't land as well most of the time. And then by the time the the last third was going on, I just was focusing so much on how bad the writing had become that the humor didn't land. And also, one of the big crutches, one of the big jokes that the plot also relied on a lot in the first one was the fact that on there monsters kept vomiting. True. And that kind of, that kind of wore me out a little, mm-hmm. but you know, that, that's just, I'm not a fan of vomit jokes, I suppose perhaps, but in this one, the bits had me, the bits really had me going. I really thought they were good. Agreed. Absolutely. I also think <laughs> it's funny. There's been three films in quick succession that have come out that have all been about rich people getting together, going on boats and going to an Island together and just getting absolutely humiliated and getting humbled. So mm-hmm. I think this, this one, one is my triangle favorite. of sadness. And what was the, what was the other one? The menu. Ah, you're right. Did, did you, you watch the menu? the menu? I did. Oh, we, we have to talk about the menu then. Oh, yeah, you saw it too? Uh, yeah, of course I did. Oh, snap. Yeah, add that to the thing. <laughs> I will. We'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, you're right. That, that yeah, it, it does fall into that same kind of trope. I would mm-hmm. say, I would say this is the best one. No, I guess I say I'd like this one the most too. I was going to say, because I really did like the menu, but I haven't seen Triangle of Sadness. But I was just thoroughly entertained with Glass Onion through and through. So I'll give it to it. Yeah, for sure. There's there's very few weaknesses, I would say, to the movie. And I would say the only thing that I didn't like the most was 
the the plot point of them all being friends who were really good friends with each other and then came up into such success at the same time because mm-hmm. of Miles Braun. Like the whole idea is just a little underdeveloped, which makes it a bit far fetched. And right. so I don't know if it sticks the landing for me. But if if I can just get over that hump of that just isn't completely well done and I can just watch a movie about rich people who are in this environment, it's it works. It works very well. Yeah, for sure. As for one of the weaknesses on my end, I thought towards the end, and I was scared that we were going to have like a repeat of Knives Out mm-hmm. and the ending really deflated things for me there. Yeah. The moment where like the whole buildup of we discover that it is in fact Miles that did the killing. And while Blanc is pointing out that he's so stupid, he's been mispronouncing words all this time. Like he's just trying to present himself as being smart when in reality he offers nothing. It's just been stealing things and stealing credit for things. Mm-hmm. I think that is really great. And then the whole bit of revealing the cocktail napkin that had glass onion on it and then he burns it. I think that's good. Yeah. And then when she starts destroying all the glass statues, and then everyone starts joining in on it. I thought that one was, uh, it was losing me a bit there because it felt just so obvious. It went on for quite a long time too. It did go on for a really long time because there were so many fucking statues. In there. <laughs> there were. There just kept being more and more. And I was like, wow, I, I didn't think there were this many in this room. And yet they're still going with it. And they're continuing yeah. the bit. And this is meant to be like the big emotional climax of this thing. Yeah. I was not um, not fully on board. But then I think the way that they went for the whole Mona Lisa thing, the Mona Lisa thing, I thought that mm-hmm. uh, brought it back together. Yeah, I agree. I would say that what's interesting about the movie is when you think about it, I guess it's kind of obvious. When you know that the when you know the plot twist of it is about Benoit Blanc and the sister trying to find the murder of of her sister. When you understand that plot point, it's kind of obvious that Miles Braun is the killer. Mm-hmm. But I still didn't completely put it together until it was very close to the end. So they did have me more on the edge of my seat about who the killer was than Knives Out was. Because it was so obvious <laughs> in Knives Out that it was Chris right. Evans. Because at a certain point, he became the only other character in the story. And that kind of sucked. But in this one, it definitely was a welcome surprise. And also... Just, I don't know if it's quite commentary on, on like, on the first movie, but him, the, the plots was being that Miles Braun is just a fucking idiot and that every single thing he's gotten, he's just taken, like, the, all the ideas for the murders he's just gotten from other people and that he's barely gotten away with anything. He's just a fucking idiot. I think I just I just really enjoyed that bit of commentary about how stupid the antagonist really was. Sure. Did you think that was commentary on the first movie? I don't think it was intentionally. I don't think <laughs> I took it that way, but I don't think it was intentionally. That's pretty funny. I thought it was more of, you know, commenting on certain it's, real it's world. It's more social. Com- it was meant to be social commentary, but I took it as both. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, but yeah. Any and also, other- also the entire time. I did not even notice that he was using words that did not exist. It was it was just blowing right past me. I did and, notice them, but I again I thought that was just part of his character of him like wanting to either create these new words or like yeah, it was just one I of those things I, where it was the lingo he had built up with these people because he calls them disruptors too. So I was like, I don't yeah, know, maybe yeah. he has his own like vocab. But I did love how they brought that around 
Yeah, no, I heard each maybe, time that he was using fake words. I heard maybe one at one point when he was giving that speech around the the picnic chairs, but like it just it's crazy how they. I think Edward Norton is just a really good performer in this movie, and he really sells the role really well of being mm-hmm. this really pretentious douchebag. His introduction, where he's just sitting on the beach playing the guitar, <laughs> is great. And I love the dude yeah. who's just on the island there, where he's like, "We're completely alone here, except for uh, Daryl. Daryl's here." I think yeah, this that was, is so funny. And then Benoit Blanc and him just sit and watch the building blow up. It's so good. It's so good. It's so, good. <laughs> so yeah. I think nothing is funnier. I think my favorite bit in the movie, though, is that Kate Hudson thought sweatshops were where they made sweatpants. That was great. Yeah, everyone in my theater, because there were a lot of people there, too. Uh, yeah, mine was, was literally every seat was filled in mine. Wow. Mine was a packed it, theater. It was opening night. Gotcha. But yeah, there were everyone... I mean, we saw as it was coming and it kept building and everyone was, yeah, I found that very amusing. So that was a great bit. She was great in that. I was going to ask, yeah, like the performances, they were across the board really strong, but yeah, yeah, I was amazed of how well um, that one was delivered. Kate hasn't played just such a dumbass. <laughs> she really did. But it was the so email, bro. The email, when when she gets the email and it's like, uh, uh, the place you've selected is one of the most notorious sweatshops in all of Asia. Sounds great. <laughs> Yeah, so good. It's just so funny. All right, um, any other final thoughts? I enjoyed it. I had a good time. I still had faults with it, but mm-hmm. it was funny enough and interesting enough to where I would happily watch it again. And I'm pleasantly surprised that it got better. And I'm hoping that the third one they make will be even better than this one. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, all right. Out of how many Jeremy Renner hot sauce bottles out of five? That shit killed me too. That was great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I give it three and a half. Wow, three and a half. Okay, I'm going higher than you, to be honest. I'm giving it a four out of five. I was wow. thoroughly entertained. Well, your knives out score was certainly higher than mine, too. Well, yeah, we'll have to, because we never did an episode on that, did we? Cause it was no, but I thought about it when we watched, movie, yeah. when I watched Glass Onion, and I'm giving knives out a two and a half, and this one's a three and a half, so it's a market improvement. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll have to go back and see when I gave that, but all right, let's move on to Andor, the show that I talked about on the most recent grab bag. You had not seen it at that point. I made the case to you to watch it. That is a good show. And you have watched it. Oh and what did you think? Fucking killer, bro. Best, best Star Wars content to come out since the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Hands down. Name one thing that's better than it. You fucking can't. Hands down, incredible. I mean, just so unique and different, so dark and and like adult, but still hopeful and honest. The characters are so well written. The plot lines are so well done. The dialogue is killer. The speeches they give are killer. The stakes, the stakes are so real in this show compared to every other star. Like the stakes are higher in this show than they are in the original trilogy. They're higher than anywhere else. It's crazy. It's crazy how good it is. It's so engaging. It's so entertaining. It's so well designed. The sets are incredible. The costumes are incredible. The performances are amazing. So surprisingly dark for Disney to go for. Mm-hmm. I just I feel like it flew under the radar under like the executive noses. They were so focused on Boba Fett and Mandalorian, and then they were like, I guess we'll do an Andor show, and then they just didn't give them enough attention to put them in their place to put them in a box. And so they were just 
free range going for the stories they wanted to tell and they're just killing it killing yeah. in every episode absolutely not Love only dark and mature but also so innately political as well yes. the fact that they had such like obvious and clear commentary throughout all of this it's amazing that yeah they were able to have free reign with it apparently the only thing that disney was like no pull back on that is in the final episode they couldn't say f the empire they had to say fight the empire so bro it was the one thing how that, like, would that have been <laughs> fuck the empire no i think fight the empire is better yeah i think so too because better i, mean, I think the, it fits more in the star wars thing but bro if marva had given that speech and she ended it with fuck the empire that would have been badass. It would have been. It wouldn't have yeah, fit as well, but it would have been badass. Yeah. So just to do some spoilery things of, you know, stuff I wanted to call out, but didn't do in the previous thing, because I wanted to yeah. preserve the experience for you. So again, if you haven't seen it, go see it. It is fantastic. We are getting a second season, which is phenomenal. Yes. But yeah, sadly, this has been the least watched Star Wars thing. What? And it is by far the That's best of fuck. the Star Wars shows. So go and give it a watch. Um, but yeah, the the thing I wanted to point out, the scene where Luthen is putting on all those trinkets and the, you know, the gaudy purple robe thing yeah. so that he can assume the role of the the collector, the antique collector. Mm. What a masterclass scene in performance yeah. out of Stone Scars. It's just fantastic. Like yeah. looking at that. It's very meticulous. Yeah, it was just... It was made. It was like a transcendent moment where mm-hmm. it felt like literally like true cinema coming out of just some one little moment in a Star Wars show. That yeah. I think represents the power of the show and how just truly excellent it is. Another amazing moment: the Eye of Aldani. That whole scene, yeah, build up across the three yeah. episodes to that arc, and then yeah, that episode where it all just comes to a head. And then that ending, I mean, the, again, the visuals, stunning, beautiful, amazing. And the way it, again, it all was rooted in the the culture of the people that lived on Aldani, this being their like massive spiritual ritual that mm-hmm. they do, that the empire has been chipping away at. And they yeah. even said, this is going to be the final time. Like we'll mm-hmm. allow a few of them to come up. They, you, they like created outposts or something so that, they could pick off some of the yeah. Aldanis that were even coming up. So again, like they had a hundred people that were coming up initially, like over a few hundred, and then it was only like 60 and then they were going to completely end the ritual going forward. So again, just showing the real impacts of the empire, which haven't been explored in a lot of the other Star Wars content. So again, making this huge yeah. Imperial entity, truly villainous and frightening and overbearing and all encompassing. Like they do such a good job of that. And here yeah. in the show and then do they show the, a real need for rebellion. They do, which is great. Yeah. It's amazing that they continuously do that so that we can have Andor, someone who mm-hmm. was like self-serving and doesn't like the empire, but isn't, you know, an idealist isn't going to be a rebel. We have to get him to that point. And so they mm-hmm. do a great job of, Showing him and the audience that, like, no, this is necessary. And, dude, that comes out incredibly in the prison arc. Oh, my God, it's so Isn't good. Isn't that just fantastic? Oh, my God, it's so good. It's just, it's just my favorite thing about it is that it really shows that 
rebellion is just the natural state of people in response to something like this. Like the 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 order and the structure that the empire is in takes work and effort to maintain and to keep strong. But rebellion is the natural response to it. And mm-hmm. rebellion is what people will do when put in a corner like this. And it's great. It's great watching them start an uprising from the ground up in this prison and how they respond to the the knowledge that they are stuck forever. Bro, Andy yeah. Serkis is so good. Exactly. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. I'm Why so glad that he was able Why to come. he only do things behind CGI? I know. He's such a good actor beyond it as well. Oh he my really god, is. he's incredible. So yeah, I'm so glad he was able to come back to the Star Wars franchise. Never more than 12. After Snoke and give an amazing performance. A truly memorable character. And then yeah, having some amazing oh speeches. Oh my god, I forgot he's lines. Never more than 12. I mean, it's just so good. That was the what episode I was talking about. Yeah, when we had, that was the episode I was talking about where they finally give us a big climactic moment to end off an episode, and it was just so satisfying. Oh, my God. Epic. Oh my and then, yeah, the fi- finale stuck the landing. Everyone's converging on Ferrix to get to Andor, and we get another great speech from Marva. So we get all that stuff happening. The uprising is truly beginning there, and Andor joins with Luthen, fully joining the Rebellion. And then the thing with Mon Mothma, she did do the arranged marriage. I can't believe that one crazy. So good. Again, just these bold yeah. decisions as you wouldn't expect of, you know, these morally complex, nuanced characters doing bad things in the interest of creating this rebellion. It's showing yeah. like all the different sides of it, the idealism and then them having to get into the mud. To make it happen. When they, yeah, so when good. they have to sacrifice Krieger and uh Yeah, exactly. Luthen has to convince Saw Guerrero to go through it because it's Saw's choice. Mm-hmm. Bro, Forrest Rigger, Whitaker is such a good actor. He's only in two scenes in the whole season, and he's he's a show stealer. Like he's he's such a powerful presence, especially as that character. Just mm-hmm. so good. But uh I want to say that like one of the darkest things I've seen came out of this show like when, oh, absolutely and it's such a phenomenal idea like the concepts they do are amazing but then the delivery is fantastic so yeah no, take but, it away because i know what you're talking about it's so good the torture uh, yeah yeah what the <laughs> fuck i was i was sitting there and i was talking to fernando about how great the show is because i was just catching up and then they get to that scene where he's describing what the torture is how they had uprooted this community of people whose special way of speaking involves like like the the way that they communicate impacts how people feel and then they took the screams of children and isolated it in order to create a sound that tortures people and i was like jesus christ jesus christ what the fuck yeah, exactly i was switching back and forth between being like that's such a like clever and genius way to create some sort of torture device that is unique to a, this sci-fi fantasy world Mm-hmm. Where there's so many, like millions and millions of creatures and species. So it's like me being impressed of them being able to tap into that to create a truly unique torturing device. And then also being just in awe at how dark it is. Like that is so brutal. And what they do incredibly well is showing the lasting impacts of that. Her name is Bix, right? Yeah. She's just done for the rest a, of the yeah. series. Like once that happens, she's yeah. just... He's a shell of a person, yeah. Yeah. It's just so sad. 
and that's a great again that's a credit to like the performance and them continually allowing us to go back and see those consequences and her being just that yeah. shell of the person at this point because which sucks because she was the best yeah i didn't i didn't uh latch on to her in those first oh, couple I episodes she was great you thought she was great yeah for me personally i didn't latch on too much but then again towards the end just it's impossible not to feel such intense sympathy for her mm-hmm. and you just see like oh gosh i mean the performance was amazing the whole decision making around letting us see those effects and how they've completely changed her i'm interested to see in season two if she's able to yeah. come back from that and i'm sure again a show of this quality will really tap into all the dramatic and creative potential that the things they set up with her you know they'll be able to follow through with that so overall incredible show mm. five out of five five out of five 100 percent. five yeah, and a half absolutely. out of five blows out <laughs> of the water just crazy crazy good i can't wait for the second season to come out and then because it's supposed to the second season is supposed to line right up straight into Rogue One, and I want to be able to mm-hmm. watch the first. Want to be able to binge watch the whole series and then watch Rogue One right after it. I think that'd be Me so too. cool. That'd Plus, in great. the in the second season, what I really want to see is him like meeting those people that are in Rogue One if they can get him back, and giving them more depth, like those side characters. Right. That I don't like because I don't remember them really well because they don't have like too much about them. And I would love to explore the characters more in, given the series. And it's the same, you know, it's Tony Gilroy, you know. Maybe he'll be True. able to convince them to make their way back with a huge bag of cash. I mean, yeah, he's gotten a few of the people back already that were in Rogue One. So yeah. exactly. I imagine he can do it as long as, you know, that's where he wants to take the story. Yeah. I have full trust in him. Like, that's the great thing is being able to watch a show and knowing you're in good hands. Such an yeah. amazing feeling. That's how I felt with Mandalorian, and then now this is just blowing that out of the water like crazy. Absolutely. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about Steven Spielberg's love letter to himself, The Fablemans. <laughs> so I have not seen it, but you did see it. Did, was this the thing you saw the other day? I watched it today. Oh my gosh. I, Two yeah, it, ended, wow. it ended like at 6.20. We're recording that when it's now 8 o'clock. So I just finished watching. Extremely fresh thoughts on Extremely. So what'd you think? It's odd. It's uh-huh. not what I thought it was going to be. And I watched I watched the Hollywood Reporter roundtable with the writers, the screenwriters of a bunch of movies this year. Like it had Ryan Johnson, Jordan Peele, Daniel Kwan, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Martin McDonough, the screenwriter for Till, and then Tony Kushner, who wrote The Fablemans. And I only watched the first 20 or so minutes. I'm going to watch the rest later. But one of the things Tony Kushner said as to what inspired him and Steven Spielberg to come up with the movie was that Tony Kushner had adapted West Side Story and they were had some downtime while they were on set. And Steven Spielberg was sharing these stories from his childhood. And Tony Kushner was like, man, that, that would be a great movie. We should make it a movie. And then lockdown happened and they were like, ah, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll work on this and we'll, you know, punch this out and we'll make it a, a, a you know, an actual script and we can turn it into a movie. And it feels very much like Steven Spielberg is sharing just a bunch of stories from his childhood. And Tony Kushner is doing the best that he can to make it into one cohesive story with, with one cohesive lesson at the end. And, and like it's, it's good on the surface, but when you really try to look at like the plots and like the character motivation and stuff, it gets a little bit messy 
there's there's he gets really personal with his family and with his mother. He gets super super personal about that. Sure. And I appreciate that as a viewer because that was the most interesting part is mm-hmm. when he really opens up about his relationship with his mother and like what had happened with his parents and their divorce and stuff like that. Very very interesting stuff. When he opens up about how he got into movie making and how that that pa- like the passion of that stuff comes up. It's also really interesting. I'm interested in it. And I was intrigued by it. And then it kind of falters a little bit in the middle because issues with other plot lines come up. And so that kind of gets put to the side a little bit. And then by the time you get to the last third of the movie, there's a whole new plot line going on that felt just like another story he wanted to tell that had nothing to do really with anything that had come before that Tony Kushner is trying desperately to tie into what had happened before. And that doesn't really work at all. And I feel like could have been completely cut out and more attention could have been focused on the plot with his family. Cause I feel like that was the weight of the story was his relationship with his parents, his relationship with his sister, his relationship with his uh, uncle. Well, not even his uncle. He's like his dad's friend who, they call uncle Mm -hmm. and how that affected him and how that those relationships affected his career and affected how he became a filmmaker. And it goes into like a whole plot line from when he's in high school and it's weird. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with anything that had happened up until that point. And it kind of like the pacing drops. I don't care as much about the characters and it just takes me way, way out of it in a way that I didn't like. But then it comes back around because the last scene in the movie is ridiculous. It is so weird. It is so bonkers and odd. And I loved it. I thought it was great. It was a great way to end that movie. And I wish they'd just cut out the high school stuff and cut right to it. Cause gotcha. I mean, the last scene is fantastic, but overall I had a good time. I think he does a lot of clever things to emphasize what he's trying to emphasize. I think he does a lot of clever stuff. The stuff in the beginning with like how he first learned he wanted to be a filmmaker. That was really impactful for me because it was very similar because, because I'm the kind of person who also always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker and the, the way that he went about learning that about himself at such a young age is very similar to how I went about learning about it at such a, a young age. And it was also interesting to see like, his relationship with his parents and how they would encourage him and his father wasn't as encouraging and things like that. And that is very similar to how I have experienced things with my family. So that stuff was super engaging, super interesting for me. And then it just falls flat, falls flat a little bit with some other plot lines that come up, but overall it was intriguing. It was interesting. It was more honest than I thought it was going to be having seen the trailer and and knowing that Steven Spielberg and stuff like that, it was more honest than I thought it was going to be, but not as open as it could have been. I feel like he definitely could have gone even more into like how he as a person was feeling throughout these things and like how it affected him emotionally. And I feel like he was like skimming the surface on that topic for the most part. He didn't dig deep enough into his own emotions throughout this point in his life and i think that might be because he's not a screenwriter and he had tony kushner write it i think when you have someone who is a experienced talented screenwriter and they're writing their own story like federico Fellini eight and a half or bob fossey and uh, uh all that jazz 
and you have that perspective of like you are a good screenwriter and you know how to write these plot lines and through lines and things like that but then you also have the personal experience of being the person whose story it is right it makes it more impactful it just felt more like a biopic that steven spiel about steven spielberg that steven spielberg happened to direct but that being said one of the best biopics you could ask for compared to a lot of other ones so it works on a lot of different levels doesn't quite stick the landing like I was hoping it would. And I would I would have made different choices had I been writing that script. I would have left out certain things and done something different. But overall, it is about Steven Spielberg, and Steven Spielberg likes it. And that's all that matters. And so I had a good time. And I give it a... Uh, uh, I don't want to spoil anything. I'm trying to think of a, a rating system that won't be spoiler filled. Um, four train crashes out of five. Gotcha. So four. I mean, that's still pretty it's, darn good. Yeah, it's decent. Yeah, it's a good rating because I think he does a lot in there that I think as a filmmaker is very unique and interesting and impacted me a lot as I was watching it. Yeah, so overall, you're saying if I'm uh, hearing you correctly, so the directing Spielberg's contributions it's off the charts but in terms of the writing and putting Spielberg's life it isn't as clean or as vulnerable as it could have been and partially that's due to you know I don't know whatever the mm-hmm. agreement was between Kushner and Spielberg about like what Spielberg wanted to focus on and how mm-hmm. deep he wanted to go um, so it seems like you're saying it, there could have been more to connect all the things that Spielberg wanted to put into this film and more to go deeper in terms of like true self-examination. Yes. To that part on the directing thing that you had said about Steven Spielberg being on point. I think there's a lot of moments where he hits that stride where it's like some of the best directing he's ever done. And then other times it kind of just feels like pointing a camera and just letting it roll, you know, like, Mm -hmm. which isn't the worst as a whole. It works really well. But there are times where it is off in the sense that the way that he's filming it isn't impacting me like it had just been 30 minutes ago. Like you'll film a sequence that is beautiful and really impactful and elevates the film as a whole. And then you're filming this part where you're just kind of pointing a camera at the scene and not doing anything crazy. And then you'll shoot a dinner scene and it's going great, you know, and it's like it's not the best directing I've seen out of Steven Spielberg. But it's probably not. I haven't seen all of his movies, but it's probably not the worst. Did you ever catch West Side Story? I did not. Gotcha. You should do that at some point soon. It is really good. I think his directing is quite amazing in that. Again, I think probably the best shot of last year came from that film. Mm. Um, His sense of the camera... His sense of the camera and how it moves through a scene is superb. Yeah, like it always has unmatched. been, it always will be. And in this movie, that is just another example of how great he's he's using the camera and placing it. Like mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, he's and, absolutely still got it. Yeah, he and I will really say did. that for sure, he knows how to dial back the stylism in order to just shoot a scene, but shoot it incredibly well. And still give off an aura. So I would say in a sense, yes, he's directing very, very well. He will get a nomination. And I wouldn't be surprised if he won. Like, he's, it's definitely very well done. I would just say it's not 
I mean, you know me. Yeah, you know I like stylism. you know how I like stylism. You, you know, love, yeah. and early Spielberg was all about it. I mean, Jaws, Jurassic Park. He really goes for it in some of these movies. And sure. uh, this is more of the one where he's dialing it back intentionally in order to just tell the story he's telling. And I can I can respect that. It's just my problems with the movie were the story itself. So then I take issue with the fact that he didn't ump up the stylism of it. Because like if he had bumped up that stylism of like this is a movie that takes place in the 50s and the in the early 60s and then really went for it. I think I might have enjoyed it more. I think I would have it would have taken me out of having to worry about issues with the story. I mean, if you're shooting a, a movie about high school kids in the 50s, like like a kid in high school in the 50s, go for it, you know? Really, really show what that was like. I mean, I think he's trying to be honest and trying to really show what it was like rather than what movies depict it to be like, which is, you know, it is a movie about himself that makes sense. But I sure. mean, I say go for it. I say go for the stylism. I say make it bonkers, make it crazy. And that way, if there is pacing issues with the story and issues with weaving in storylines, at the very least, I will be entertained as an audience member watching this cool sequence happening. That was my issue with the directing, was that it's not that it's bad, it's that it didn't make up for the issues I had with the writing. If that makes sense. Sure. All right. Overall, still four out of five. Like, I would watch it again. I mean, yeah, it is a very solid rating. It's a really good film if it's a four. So, yeah, I will have to catch it sometime soon. I plan to this weekend. So then, yeah, at some point in a future oh, episode, we will be able to forgot. talk about The performances, the performances. Michelle Williams, give her an Oscar. Get, just give it to her. For she, best actress? She, she, she fought for, for Is she supporting she, or is she lead? Uh, I think she should get a best supporting actress Oscar. Because mm-hmm. I think she would... I think she was a supporting character in the movie, and I think she would win it easily because she did support the movie in a lot of ways. It's about Steven Spielberg. It's about Steven Spielberg's character. He's the main character. Right. And the mother figure is a very good supporting character in the movie, and so I think she should win Best Supporting Actress. I don't know why they're pushing for her to win Best Actress. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know why. It's, it's an odd choice because she, A, would definitely win Best Supporting Actress because – I mean, when you watch a role and you can tell that what they're doing is not trying to steal the show, but to support the story itself and to be that character that gives life to the main character. Like J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. Like, you can feel them doing that intentionally. You can feel the power that they're giving this character so that the rest of the movie can succeed. They are supporting by definition. And she did that to a T, like, one of the mm-hmm. best supporting performances you'll ever see in any movie this year or in the past 10 years. Like she killed it as Steven Spielberg's mother. She was fantastic. Paul Dano, really, really good. Like, I mean, Paul Dano's always great, but you know Paul Dano. He loves his screaming roles <laughs> where he's going crazy. Right. Very well restrained. Like mm-hmm. the most restrained performance I've seen Paul Dano, and he still kills it. Like he's he's doing a fantastic job. Uh, what's his name? Seth Rogen. Hey, good. <laughs> he how did the how did the like kid actor and I guess older kid actor in high school? How did they do? Solid? The young kid actor was good. Was really really good. 
Like he like as a kid actor goes, like you they hit the jackpot. He was great. He mm-hmm. played the role really, really well. And I understood what I was trying to feel when he was feeling things. The older kid actor, he was doing really good, but I think the role was more restrained because I don't think Steven Spielberg wanted to show as many of his emotions as he could have or mm-hmm. was trying to go for. So it felt like it was held back a bit. But he was good. He was good in the role. He was a good actor. I just don't think it was like as incredible performance as one should be if you're the main character of a movie about the filmmaker itself. Like Roy Scheider and all that jazz is one of, if not the greatest performances ever filmed, ever. Because Bob Fosse is telling him exactly how to feel and then is expressing every emotion he's ever felt and every flaw he feels like he has and telling it to Roy Scheider and Roy Scheider is embodying it. And that's why it's so fantastic. (laughs) And in this movie, it feels more like him trying to show how he was responding to the crises in his family. And it didn't go all the way. It showed a little bit, but it didn't go all the way with his own emotions. And I wish I had. Gotcha. Because I bet the actor could have done it. He was good. I bet he could have gone for it. Hmm. Well, now I'm quite interested in seeing it and seeing how I feel about whether or not there's restraints or a lack of full commitment in terms of bringing out all those emotions. Um, I think Paul yeah. Dano should get a best supporting actor nomination. I'm going to I'm going to throw it out there. I think he was really well restrained and I think he played the role really really well for what it was. And I think he did do a good job supporting that cast and being the backbone for the family in that role. Like I think he did a very very good job. He allowed Michelle like his support. He was supporting to Michelle Williams who was supporting the story. Like he, he the support <laughs> he gave as an actor was enough to allow Michelle Williams to really go for it. And that's why she was so great. So I think together they worked really, really well. I think they were a great pairing. So the two of them on screen worked incredibly well. The casting was off the charts in the movie. Nice. Well, there you go. The Fableman's 4 to 5 from Dylan. Okay, we're going to start zooming through the rest of these reviews that we have. Just get brief non-spoilery reviews Mm -hmm. so she said which i watched it's part of those investigative journalism films focusing on the you know process it's very procedural although what this one does that films like uh, all the president's men aren't as interested in is showing the home life of the two reporters that are on the case megan tui and jody cantor um and so that aspect to it i thought was a strong addition they focus on it in the beginning of the film a lot more. It sort of you know, becomes less prominent as it goes on. But yeah, with Tui specifically, Carrie Mulligan, she delivers a really strong performance really? for dealing with yeah rough postpartum depression. I don't think it's strong enough to get into the supporting actor category just because that's very stacked this year. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't be against it because it was quite strong. She has a lot of really solid scenes. I do really um, like Carrie Mulligan. I do. I'm a huge fan. Me too. Um, I so said yeah. I do. Oh, you do. Well, yeah. I do too. We're in agreement. Um, so yeah, she she's fantastic. And then the the film I think hits its stride in the middle when Cantor goes abroad to meet with some of the people that have been affected by Harvey Weinstein that have mm-hmm. worked for him at one point. And then were abused, taken advantage of. Samantha Morton and Jennifer Ely 
Yeah. They are incredible in this film. Their scenes were so commanding. They were by far the best part. Hmm. Like, I thought they absolutely, yeah, just dominated the scenes. Um, the rest of the film and they're trying to do the reporting and gather more information. All of it I do think is quite interesting. I just don't think it matches like the emotion that was conveyed in those particular scenes and the revelations that we get. Um, like those are the scenes that made the whole movie worth it. Um, the other, like, you know, the drawbacks of the film, which again, I think is quite good. I'm giving it a good rating, but I think there were mm-hmm. some missteps, I think giving us a greater sense of danger and also allowing there to be a more concrete amount of stakes so that we understand where they are in the process. Cause there's all this chatter about the things that we need to publish or things that we need in order to carry on with the case. Um, and at one point they're really hassling the reporters for getting hard proof of the NDAs that Harvey Weinstein used and having those paper copies. And then later on in the film, when they're like getting closer and closer, the bosses are now pressuring the reporters to rush to print without having like certain key pieces of information that would like make the um, integrity of the piece be a lot stronger. So I don't know, just giving more clarity on what exactly they needed, what they were looking for. And then they also, there's a moment in the film where they try and point out that they're being followed. Like Harvey Weinstein now knows that they're on the case and that they're going to try and report on all of this wrongdoing. And they, mm-hmm. they like mention this and try to use it as a way to raise the stakes and establish some danger for the characters, but they don't lean into it at all. They abandon it almost immediately. The only thing we get is just an SUV that lingers as she's walking home and then it speeds off really quickly. That's like the one time that they tried to include that bit of them possibly being in danger. So I was like, why even include that if you're not really going to commit to it? Um, but overall, I think it's a solid film. Like if you tend to like the films that are just about people gathering information and doing research and going, following up on leads, I think you'll have a good time with it. It's obviously a very mm-hmm. timely movie since it, you know, is the, talking about the story that triggered the Me Too movement. Um, So, yeah, obviously you're not going to have any crazy surprises about where things end up. Um, But I think, yeah, it's about the process of it getting to that point. And I think it does quite well in getting us there. And again, the middle portion with, you know, Samantha Morton and Jennifer Ely, that really elevates the film. So I'm giving it a 3.5 midnight calls out of five. Because there's a lot of times where people are on the phone and getting woken up uh, from their summer right. by calls. But yeah. Nice. Now, next, I'm going to talk about Blonde. So I watched this in preparation for our last Grab Bag Reviews and then forgot that I had watched it. So I didn't actually talk about it last time we did a Grab Bag Reviews. Mm-hmm. So I watched Blonde. Favorite movie saw... of the year? Oh, man. Just... <laughs> so, so there's a lot of movies that are very, very controversial. And and there are some out there that I'm just that I'm willing to defend. This is not one of those movies. <laughs> this movie is god awful. It is 
an abomination to the memory of Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. Completely, wildly inaccurate. And just, it makes her look like a blow-up doll. Like, that's just passed around from man to man. She has no agency in the film whatsoever. She makes none of her own choices. She has no moment where she she has, like, a, a revelation of this and has her comeuppance and then returns to, like, glory and, like, puts the men in their place or anything. Which is, and, and then just kills herself in the end. So it just makes her look like weak, and and just like crazy, and it's not correct. And any brief Google search on Marilyn Monroe will reveal who she, a closer account of who she actually was as a person, someone who did care about her work, and who was passionate about being an actress, and who has no evidence of ever being assaulted by studio executives, which. I don't know, maybe it did happen, but there's zero evidence of it, and then they leaned into it heavy in the movie. And for there to be zero evidence of something like that, and to lean that heavily into it, and to be that graphic about it, seems absolutely ridiculous for the memory of a woman who is now dead. It's just... what's One of the most disappointing things is that the way that this movie is shot and the way they go about it is incredible. It's gorgeous. It is one of the best-looking films you'll ever see in your life, and in just... Some of the techniques they use are fantastic and phenomenal. Yeah. And the idea of approaching a, a biopic in like a nonlinear sort of surrealistic fashion is a great idea. And I would love it. I would love it if they had leaned into it. But I wish they had done any semblance of research on the actual Marilyn Monroe or just taken Marilyn Monroe's name out of it and just made it a story about – even if they had done that, even if they had made a story about a fictional actress, it would have been bad because it's just Ana de Armas being a woman, getting the shit kicked out of her for three hours, and then killing herself. Who the fuck wants to watch that? Who the fuck wants to watch a woman get treated like shit for three hours and then die? Right. Yeah, that it is sucks. It is baffling that that's the direction they went in with it. I also saw it way back when. Um, and yeah, it's also a horrible film, in my opinion, as well. There's a scathing letterbox review that we have on our box office show account so you can go there and read my opinions on it i'll just mention one line that i had from it i said overall it's a misguided failure that stole and trite at best offensive and exploitative at worst good line there is one shot though where they first introduce adrian brody's character arthur miller arthur miller he walks yep. into the, a, a wide shot of New York and he like drops his his, his uh, uh, playwright papers, his teleplay papers, whatever. The shot of New York, where it's supposed to be 1960s New York, is fucking phenomenal. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It looks like it was actually filmed because they use the right camera, they use the right uh, film to make it look just like new york in the night like to give that impression and then they cgi'd the entire backdrop to re put it like to put the scene back in the 1960s and they did it flawlessly and i'm pissed off that i got stuck in this shit ass movie that (laughs) so many talented people so many talented designers and costume designers and production designers and cgi artists worked so hard and did so well on this movie that nobody's gonna watch because it's a piece of fucking garbage yeah, it is quite shameful because there are a lot of technical aspects to it that are really phenomenal and amazing, as you pointed out. Cinematography that is one of the most great frustrating great things. Designs. That is one of those frustrating things about watching a movie, especially nowadays. Now that 
doing things successfully in a film, making a film look gorgeous has technologically become easier and more accessible to people to, to see movies that are, that have production qualities that are so superbly excellent, that have designs that are so well done, that have attached real artists to these uh, secondary uh, production departments, as opposed to the uh, writing and directing teams, how they have such true craftsmen working on these films to have such great quality, and yet to have the people who are directing and writing the films bomb so hard. It's just frustrating, and I've seen it so many times, more and more over the years, where movies will look and feel great because of how the production team works as a unit and how these artists are really working in this field. And then to have the writing team drop the ball because they're bad at their job, to have them be the ones to, to mess up, because that is the one thing that makes a movie unforgivably bad is if the writing is bad. And I stand by that. And this movie is unashamedly one of the worst written movies I've ever seen in my life. All right. So out of how many? Zero. Zero fucking stars. <laughs> zero? Are you actually giving it a zero? I mean. All right, I'll give it one star. And that one okay. star is solely for the production quality. Solely for the hardworking artists who put themselves on the line here for a movie that they didn't know was going to be this goddamn awful. Wow. Phenomenal. All right. So moving on from that to Banshees of Inishiran. So I've seen this. You have not yet. But you definitely got to. Just come on. You got to get connected with your Irish heritage. I do. I really do. I've, this is the movie that was like on the top of my excitement list for <laughs> the Oscar season. It was my number one movie. It's on my Oscar draft. I want to see it so fucking bad. But I have to drive 40 minutes to a theater to go watch it. Or I have to drive 20 minutes to a theater I fucking hate to watch it. <laughs> and I just need to find the time. And they only show it once a day in both of these theaters. And so I need to find a time where I can go and finally watch it quickly before it just gets stuck on hbo max because i want to see it in theaters if i have to watch hbo max so be it i'll live but god damn it i really 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 want to watch it in theaters because i love in bruges i love in bruges gotcha so yeah i think it's definitely worth it to try and catch this in theaters while you still can it has an interesting premise about two friends colin farrell brendan gleason and they are no longer going to be friends anymore because brendan gleason's character does not want be friends at this point and the other character Colin Farrell's great fucking premise I, just, I fucking premise. love it and he just doesn't understand why and so he continually tries to go and continue to be friends with uh his buddy that he always had so I think it's very funny it's very dark it's very depressing it's very beautiful in both the cinematography and the score they love having these little uh, like interstitials of just seeing the scenery of this Did island. Did you say interstitials? Yeah. Is that another Edward Norton fake word? It could be. Well, interstitial is real. I don't know if I use it. Is it really? Uh, yeah, it's real. Oh my God. I just, I never heard that word before. I thought you were like jamming two words together. No, you could get me on whether I use it correctly or if I'm confusing with another word, but interstitial is a real word. Wow. So, how dare you, all Miles? All that, it's all that scrabble. <laughs> For real. Uh, so anywho, so yeah, they have these nice little moments uh, in between scenes where you can just see the landscape of this Irish island, and it is mm -hmm. beautiful, oh, truly beautiful. And then I think there's a couple standout scenes. There's one in the bar, which is absolute perfection on the writing level, performance level, just hits every beat that it needs to hit, uh, and it it's fantastic. I will say, though, 
there is a part later in the film in the third act where it does start losing me, which really? was quite sad because I thought it was extremely strong throughout all the rest of it. But yeah, something just disconnected at the towards the end there, but still a worthwhile thing to go and see. Um, I'm giving it uh, four Thekin Rowans out of five. Are you allowed to say that? Yeah. You say Fekin? Well, because it's Fek. Arthur Fleck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not. It's not fuck. It's Fek. How many exactly. Fekin Rowans? I don't even think. That, is that how they say it? Fekin? I thought it was Fokin. No, they say Fekin. Fekin Rowans. Rowans. Yeah. interesting so there you go all right go ahead and give us some nice nutshell reviews of these next few things so didn't i talk about the white lotus season one in the last grab bag and yes, i was sir. saying that i was gonna start season two you absolutely did so i've started season two there's still <laughs> three episodes to go and i i think i texted you didn't i you have to watch the white lotus you sure did i said you have to uh-huh. and the reason is because i can't explain why it's good I've done oh. the best. I feel like I'm a kind of person who is very good at expressing my opinion about things, very good at vocalizing why I think something is good. This is one of the ones that is starting to escape me because I enjoy it mm-hmm. so goddamn much. And the only thing that can explain it is that it's just rich people who are having petty fucking drama. <laughs> and it's exciting. And it's an exciting version of it. And it's funny. It is funny. But it's not like... I don't know. It's not like the funniest thing I've ever seen, but it, it definitely makes me laugh. Jennifer Coolidge is great. I just, I have such a hard time describing why I think it is as good as I think it is. There's no crazy, well, up until this last episode, there's no like crazy huge things that happen with the plot. It's just very little dramatic beats. This last episode though, talk about ending with a bang. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh my God. I can't believe they went for it. I saw it, I, I saw it coming and I said, there's no way they're going to do it. There's no way they're going to go for it. And they went for it. And if it is exactly what I think it is, because I, I really, I really hope they go all out. I hope it's not like a, like they try to backpedal on it in the next episode and try to explain it in a more socially acceptable way. I really hope they fucking go for it. And that it's as, horribly disturbing as the cliffhanger led me to believe i really hope they don't backpedal i really hope they stick the landing with how atrocious it is oh my god it's crazy oh my god it's nuts god i think season two is definitely significantly better than season one though i will say wow i think but that's just from a writing standpoint i think enjoyment level my enjoyment level is the same but from a writing standpoint they've upped the game for sure they season two is interesting because now it's it's a bunch of characters who hold a bunch of extreme beliefs, none of which I agree with, and then they're just putting them all on the same in the same hotel and interacting with each other, and just the drama is just it's so good, it's so rewarding to watch, and it's so just enjoyable. Ah, it's a good show. It's a very very good show. Gotcha. And, yeah, and I will. Please, I'll be starting my watch of it quite soon thank you next on the docket for shows at least so yeah we can move on to the menu which both of us had seen um just give some brief thoughts on it i do think it's 
good. I enjoyed myself while watching it. There's a lot of just funny, silly gags that they do of, again, having these out of touch rich people and brought together and then they're getting humiliated. The whole bread bit, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I was very much aligned with them because I would be livid if I didn't get bread at some restaurant. Um, but things like that and then how they progress and get more and more intense of a uh, uh, criticism of each of those uh, attendees to that restaurant. I think all of that's quite strong. I like Anya Taylor-Joy. So I think there were a lot of good elements there. All the moments where they have the inserts of the food and they have the yeah. cards. Where it's like a cooking show. Like. Exactly, yeah. All that oh stuff is great. God, dude. So yeah, I think it's, it's quite good. I will say though, I don't know if the ideas entirely coalesce in terms of yeah. you know the criticisms that they're making and they could have gone further and interrogated the chef and the dynamic he has with his like you know his surrogate chefs um in the kitchen yeah. but they didn't quite go for that but still i think it was you know it had some sharp yeah. clever things to say yeah out of i just i feel like it didn't stick the landing completely on the social commentary as much mm -hmm. as i was hoping it would about like wealthy people and the expression of food as you go higher up into the culinary classes Right. And I feel like it could have stuck that landing a bit better. But I mean, one of the most unexpectedly funny movies I've ever seen. That <laughs> shit had me dying, bro. I'm telling you. I mean, <laughs> I was literally like you thought they were funny gags. I thought they were hysterical, dude. When the when they have that whole intensity, I'm going to spoil it. So this is spoilers for the menu. <laughs> if you don't want the menu to be spoiled, skip to the next section. When they do the bit where it's it's the the first time it gets intense when the dude shoots himself into the mouth and it's it's building up and it's intense and it's dark and then he kills himself the suspense is there the way they filmed it was great and then it cuts to the insert and it says rip jeremy loudon dude i was fucking dying that shit's so funny it's yeah. so funny when he makes Tyler cook something and the insert is just Tyler's <laughs> bullshit that was so oh good. my god it's so good ray finds is hilarious Oh my god, it, just, it was so, so funny. I think it definitely could have stuck the landing better for the commentary he was having about the class, culinary classes and whatnot. And I think the ending was gorgeous when they make the s'mores and they, they just paint the floors and stuff. I thought that looked really pretty. For sure. I, I, it, it was mo more of an entertaining piece than it was an engaging one, I would say. I was just I was I would say I was thoroughly entertained the whole time, but I would not say I was like mentally engaged with like what was happening with the the through lines with the characters and, and the the beats they were trying to hit was not doing it great for me. But entertained through and through, laughing on the edge of my seat, excited, and also not what I thought it was going to be. Everybody I've talked to always talks about, oh, it's the cannibal movie, right? Like, they all think it's going to be about cannibals because that's what you think. You know, you go to an upper-class restaurant, you see the smokehouse with all the meat, you're like, oh, they're probably eating people. They probably serve people. Sure. It's not what it is at all. And I kind of like they didn't do that. And also, I said this to Carlos because I watched it with Carlos and Isa. If the movie hadn't gone for being funny, like if they hadn't gone for that and really leaned into that, it would not have been as good because it just would have been ridiculous. Right. I mean, yeah, and I'm glad lean into the ridiculousness at points. So that's yeah. 
helpful for sure. I'm glad they went for it with the humor because it worked for me. John Leguizimo, fantastic. I mean, kills it as such a douchebag. Yeah. yeah, I I enjoyed it. Uh, How would you rate it out of five dead Jeremy Loudons? I'll give it a 3.5. I would also give it a 3.5. I think we're pretty aligned on that. Last but not least, very recently, the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special got dropped. Did you watch it, Ryan? No, but you did. So what'd you think? I did. It's funny. It made me laugh a lot. Um, Not too enthusiastic? It it is funny. It did make me laugh. It's the same James Gunn humor you would expect out of like Peacemaker, which is good. But I think Peacemaker goes for it in the same way that this one can't because it's Disney. Right. But I mean, it's still it still is very funny. Um, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Kevin Bacon's really good in it. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of forty minutes of like just an enjoyable story and and trying to catch up one plot point, like trying to wrap up one plot point that people have been asking about that wanted to be confirmed and then they finally just confirmed it and then there's like an emotional moment at the end and it's nice and it doesn't really set up guardians of the galaxy 3 like i was told it would but it is it's entertaining it's worth one watch it's not very christmasy but it is well let me let me rephrase that it's very christmasy but it's not very conventionally christmasy which is kind of by design but the set design is fantastic phenomenal 10 10 stars a thousand million stars incredible (laughs) The okay. whole special, though, I would give it a three. Three. All right. So, yeah. Man, all right. A lot of stuff we reviewed this time. We sure did have a lot. Cranked yeah. out a lot, yeah. And we still have so many more to go. I have so many movies on my list I need to watch. I know, yeah. We'll One definitely, minute. in preparation for like the Oscar stuff, but also our top ten lists, we got a lot yeah. to catch up on. So, well, What is be... my top ten going to be for the year? There wasn't a lot of standouts. But I also haven't seen everything. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Anyway, We're in that anyway, time of that year. Is, yeah, exactly. That is all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDay. If you like the show, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to, whether it be Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, whatever it be. Please give us five stars if you enjoyed listening to Ryan and I gab on and on about movies and be sure to tune in the next time we have an episode have a good rest of your day